Welcome to First Fiction, the podcast dedicated to showcasing notable new fiction published on Verso.inc. Verso.inc is a new online community for discovering and sharing great fiction. Our mission is to help discerning readers discover the best new fiction and assist emerging authors in growing their audiences. First Fiction features selected works distinguished as noteworthy by Verso.inc moderators. Keep listening and you might discover something you love. Hello, welcome to First Fiction. I'm so glad you've decided to join me today. I'm your host, Karen Hahn, and as a reader, I enjoy a wide range of genres, and I love the variety of fiction that we see on Verso.inc. Today's selection is more literary in nature and focuses on a small boy making a big step in the world. The Emerald City is written by Cassiopeia Fletcher, And if you'll keep listening after the story, you'll get to hear our conversation about Jo and her unique experience of riding through the eyes of a child. This is The Emerald City by Cassiopeia Fletcher, read by the author. The sidewalk stretched towards the horizon, never twisting or bending as it shone pearlescent in the sunlight. His brand new scooter jumped and rattled with every dip and imperfection in the sidewalk. The handlebars wrapped in bright red foam that reflected in the chrome neck felt like clouds beneath Joe's palms. He almost regretted cutting off the red and white plastic streamers that were attached to the hollow ends of the handlebars, wondering how they would look flapping in the breeze as he raced down the empty sidewalk. But the streamers were very girly, and no self-respecting nine-year-old boy would keep them. Mom had sighed when Joe asked for a pair of scissors, but handed them over without a word. She looked on with a small frown as he grabbed a handful of the cherry plastic and snipped it off, the little streamer slipping from his fingers to litter the garage floor like confetti. For now, the long plastic ribbons remained on the concrete floor, coiled up like two dozen red and white snakes prepared to strike. Joe promised to clean them up when he got back from the store, the whole reason he'd needed to cut the streamers off in the first place. The store was on the corner, across the street from Joe's neighborhood. Liam Parks lived in the corner house just before the stop sign, and he noticed everything. Joe's house was the smallest on the block with a dilapidated porch colored by weeds that poked through the cracks between wood planks. Vines and dandelions filled the diamond spaces of the splintered lattice that rimmed the gaping mob beneath the bowed porch boards. The front entryway's broken screen door hung from the top hinge and thunked off the bottom hinge every time it opened. Mom said she would fix it. It was on the long list of things to do. She stuck to the rust-pocked white fridge with a Mickey Mouse magnet, but she never had the time. Joe didn't mind. The back door opened fine despite the nails on a chalkboard sound it made when the door slammed closed. On Wednesdays and Sundays, Joe pulled the dandelions out of the tangled vines and weeds beneath the porch and put them in a clear plastic solo cup on the kitchen counter. That way, Mom would see them when she came home from third shift at the hospital in the next town over. He was always asleep when she saw them, but he knew she was happy because she would draw a smiley face on the post-it note and stick it to the bathroom mirror so he'd see it when he brushed his teeth. The only time Joe invited Liam over to play, the older boy had wrinkled his nose at the disposable red plates stacked in the sink and the popcorn bits scattered across the color-blocked commercial carpeting Mom bought for $50 from Dr. J when he redid the floors in his dentist's office. Liam had twisted the sleeve of his sweater between his fingers as he trailed down the short hallway after Joe. They spent less than an hour playing with Joe's second-hand Ninja Turtles on the cut square of color-blocked carpeting that covered his bedroom's plywood floor. Liam didn't say anything. He just looked around, taking note of the mustard-yellow paint on Joe's walls and the two mattresses stacked together without a frame. It was embarrassing. 
That's quite the lovely scooter, dear, said Mrs. Newman from next door. Her dandelion fluff hair rose over the fence line as she smiled at Joe between pickets. She was gardening again, tending the flowers and bushes that grew on the inside of the white plastic fence that circled her tiny single-story house. Mom said it was a very American dream. Daffodils and violets seemed to be Mrs. Newman's favorite flowers because she planted them everywhere. Cascades of tiny blue-faced flowers tumbled from the sunshine yellow window boxes set into the bottom of the two front windows that bordered the jade-painted door. Mrs. Newman liked lots of color, though the house itself was a plain eggshell white. Thank you, Mrs. Newman, Joe said, stopping next to the mailbox. Mrs. Newman's son, Nick, had painted cobalt blue. Nick didn't live with her anymore. He was too old for that. Mom said he was almost forty, but he stopped by every day to help Mrs. Newman around the house. If your mom doesn't mind, Joseph, Mrs. Newman said, and Joe sighed. He'd long stopped telling her his name was Jonah. I'd like my Nick to come spray your yard for weeds this week. They'll start cottoning soon, and I'd rather you not share. I don't think Mom will care, Joe said, scratching his toe against the sidewalk. The sun was high in the sky now, and his shadow had dissolved into a single blob of black beneath his scooter. Nick was nice, even if he was old, and he made Mom laugh. It was a stupid laugh, high and bubbly as she twisted her already curly hair around her finger, but it was still a laugh. Nick only moved back to town three months ago, but Joe had known about him for years. Every time Mom was late coming back from work, she'd call Mrs. Newman, and the kindly old woman would be standing on her doorstep as Joe stepped off the bus. Joe liked those days, because Mrs. Newman always had cookies and milk in the kitchen, the warm, gooey, fresh-from-the-oven kind with extra chocolate chips. On a good day, Joe could eat five cookies before Mrs. Newman realized they were gone, because she spent all of her time talking about her son Nick, who lived in Florida with his crazy wife and her even crazier mother. She doesn't even want kids, Mrs. Newman would say as she pulled a fresh batch of cookies from the oven. What's the point in getting married if you're not going to have kids? I'm not getting any younger, you know. I want grandbabies. And then, as if remembering Joe was there, Mrs. Newman would give him her widest smile as she set a glass of milk next to the overflowing plate of cookies Joe was snitching from. Oh dear, where has my brain gone? She would say apologetically as she pushed the cookie plate closer. Have another cookie, dear. Joe always nodded politely and smiled, his cheeks stuffed chipmunk-like with warm dough and melted chocolate. Bank for my fufnofman. Now that school was out for the summer, Joe spent even more time at Mrs. Newman's house than before. Today, however, was Sunday, and Mom didn't work on Sundays until late. Right now she was making lunch, but Joe had forgotten to tell her he'd used the last of the Wonder Bread for cinnamon toast. Since the tomato soup was opened and Mom had already sliced the cheese, she decided to run down to the corner store for some more bread. I'll do it, Joe said, waving his hand in the air as he tried not to jump. The whole house shook when he jumped. Please? I'm nine today, Mom. I can do it myself, right? She was going to say no. He could see it in her face. With great restraint, Joe tucked his hands behind his back, stood straight, and gave her his biggest puppy eyes. I can't help. With a heavy sigh, Mom relented. But take your scooter, she said, and don't leave the sidewalk. And so here Joe was, standing on his scooter in front of Mrs. Newman's house as the old woman tended her petunias. Are you off to young Liam's house? the cotton-haired woman asked. I do believe his family just pulled in from church. Such a lovely family. His mother quite likes my butternut squash. I'd have you take her some, but it's still midsummer, you know. They'll not be up for a while yet. No, Mrs. Newman, Joe said, long used to the woman's absent-minded ramblings. I'm off to the corner store for bread. Mom's making lunch. To Aussies, you say? Mrs. Newman looked both startled and impressed, and Joe preened under her wide-eyed gaze. 
All on your own, then? How grown up? Yes, Joe nodded once and projected humility. Mom said it was wrong to be prideful. Today is my birthday. I'm nine now. Oh, my. Happy birthday, dear. Her brow furrowed and she cocked her head to the side. I'm sure I must have known that. You and your mother having lived next door for so long. She shook her head with a laugh. I suppose you won't be needing me much longer then, will you? She looked so sad as she said it, Joe couldn't help but exclaim. Mom said next year, too, after school starts. A bit startled by the outburst, Mrs. Newman stared at Joe for just a moment before her face softened into a warm smile. I'd quite like that, dear. Joe beamed, grateful he could help the old woman feel happy again. Mrs. Newman looked best with a smile. Oh! Mrs. Newman exclaimed, her eyes on the road over Joe's head. Where has my brain gone? Joe turned just as Nick's gray Pontiac turned into Mrs. Newman's drive. It was an ugly car, dented and rust-pocked like an old tin can dropped too many times and left in a damp cellar, but Joe loved it. Sometimes, when Nick came to visit and Mom wasn't home yet, Nick would take him driving down Highway 27 until the cornfields hit the river. Propped up on his knees, the windows all down so the wind could rush inside, Joe felt like he was flying. It was the best feeling in the world, and Joe always hated when Nick slowed the car to turn around and drive back into town. Can't we go a little farther? Joe once asked, turned around in his seat so he wouldn't have to watch the town come back into view. Just over the bridge. Sorry, buddy, Nick had said, ruffling Joe's hair without looking over. But it's best to avoid the water. I wouldn't want the old tin can to rust solid. If that happened, we wouldn't be able to drive at all. That didn't really make sense, but if crossing the river meant they couldn't drive anymore, then Joe was okay with not crossing the river. For now. Hey, Joey, Nick said, climbing out of the tin can's driver's side door. He slammed the door shut, and it bounced back. Muttering, Nick slammed the door again, and it reluctantly latched. Piece of junk, Nick grumbled. I hope that stupid credit check goes through. Still haven't gotten your new car, Mrs. Newman asked, standing up behind her picket fence. She was only about a foot taller than the triangle-tipped plastic barrier, with most of her height coming from her curly puff of silver hair. You're replacing the tin can? Joe's face contorted with anguish. Why? I love the tin can. So do I, Nick said, patting the tin can's roof. Despite everything, he's been good to me. But it's about time I got something better, he winked at Joe. Faster. Despite his anguish at losing the tin can, Joe couldn't help but be curious. Faster? Nick nodded with a grin. Definitely. Is your mom in? She's making lunch, Joe said, working his fingers around the scooter's foam handles. The tin can was a good car. But a faster car would be good too, right? Maybe then he and Nick could drive across the river before the car could rust. Weren't you on an errand, Joseph? Mrs. Newman asked. I'm sure your mother is waiting. I forgot, Joe exclaimed. He looked back at Nick with his chest puffed out and his chin angled upward. I'm going to the store for Mom. We need bread. The store, huh? Nick squinted down the sidewalk toward the end of the street. You mean Ozzy's, right? Yes, Joe said, trying to tamp down on his smugness. I'm nine now, so I can go that far. Nick whistled, obviously impressed, and Joe preened. Nine, huh? You sure are growing up fast. He looked over at Joe's house and licked his lips, rubbing them together and thought, It all right if I keep your mom company till you're back? Joe shrugged. Sure, but you should stay for lunch, too. We're having grilled cheese and soup. Nick grinned. My favorite. Mine too. Oh, honestly, Mrs. Newman huffed, squatting back down to work on her flower bed. Loitering on the sidewalk. Off with you both. See you later, Mrs. Newman, Joe said, waving as he kicked his scooter down the pasty white sidewalk. Bye, Nick. 
See you in a bit, Nick said, but Joe was already turned around to watch the corner. The Turner's house came next, but they weren't home. They always took their boat out on Sundays, driving all the way to Brown Lake to fish. Joe scooted by their salmon house. It wasn't pink, the Turner's oldest son, Harry, said so, and bumped over a crack in the sidewalk. The next house was pale blue, like a robin's egg, but Joe didn't know who lived there, so he just scooted on by, ignoring the overabundance of garden gnomes that populated the small front yard. There were at least a dozen of them, all painted vibrant colors with their faces frozen in creepy smiles. He'd never liked those stupid gnomes. Hey, Joe, Liam said from his front porch, and Joe looked over the gnome-infested yard to wave. I can't play on Sundays. I know, Joe said. It was the same role Liam always had. To Liam's mom, Sunday was for family. I'm going to the store. Liam's eyes went wide. By yourself? Yeah, Joe said with a careless shrug. He didn't want to brag. It's no big deal. But... Liam looked out towards the road that edged the sidewalk to the left of his house. Unlike the neighborhood road where kids often gathered to play kickball after school, Poppy Street was a main road. It ran all the way to the edge of town. Liam looked back at Joe with wide eyes. What if a car comes? I won't go when there's a car, Joe said, motioning toward the empty road. Besides, it's Sunday. Liam pursed his lips. I guess, his eyes narrowed at Joe. Is that a new scooter? Joe rolled back and forth on his scooter, only moving an inch or two each time. Yeah, for my birthday. Liam's face turned sour. You should wear a helmet. Scooters are dangerous. What if you fell off? I'm not a baby, Joe sulked. Why did Liam always have to spoil everything? Liam, Mrs. Parks called through the open screen door. It's time for lunch. Coming. Unlike other kids, Liam didn't jump up and run inside. Instead, he carefully picked up his uniformly placed army men and put them into a plastic ice cream bucket. Snapping the lid on, Liam stood and brushed off his khaki church pants. You should go home and get your mom, Liam said, his eyes moving back to Poppy Street before looking back at Joe. You shouldn't cross the street by yourself. It's fine, Joe said, trying not to snap as he rolled his scooter harder, the distance shorter. I'm not a kid. Liam shrugged and went inside. Once the door closed, Joe stuck out his tongue at Liam's back. Even though he was a year older than Joe, Liam was such a scaredy cat. Why were they even friends? Scooting past Liam's house, Joe abruptly ran out of sidewalk. He stared out at the daunting stretch of black road that separated him from Ozzy's corner store, and suddenly he understood. Liam lived off this street. Cars probably drove by all the time. Apprehension opened in Joe's stomach, yawning as wide as the yellow-lined road barring his way to Ozzy's. Going from the sidewalk to the road was easy. A ramp was built into the sidewalk, so his scooter would barely bump as Joe maneuvered it onto the black asphalt. But there was something about that jarring juxtaposition of black and white pavement that made him pause. If Joe crossed the street by himself, then it was proof that he was a man now. But was he ready for that? Being a man meant that he had to be brave and strong. No more running to Mom's room after a nightmare or during a thunderstorm. No more Mrs. Newman and her gooey cookies or late afternoon rides with Nick. He'd have extra chores instead of TV time and more vegetables than dessert. He didn't want any of that, but he promised Mom. Swallowing hard, Joe shifted his scooter until the front wheel edged against the black pavement. He paused, looked both ways. Nothing. There wasn't a light on the corner, only a stop sign, but Joe stared at it, daring the sign to change colors. Nothing. With another quick glance down the street, Joe pushed out onto the asphalt. 
The road was seamless beneath Joe's scooter, and he coasted across the whole black expanse with only a single thrust. The wind rushed through his hair and stung his eyes as he went, picking up speed with the very slight slope that angled him directly in front of Ozzy's corner store. Leaning left, Joe angled his wheel to hit the sloped ramp that led up to the sidewalk. He thumped into it, the front wheel hitting a crack. The world lurched, the sidewalk road and green-painted bricks of Ozzy's store all blurred together with a splash of blue that must have been the sky. Joe crashed against the ground with a gasp, his whole body jarring from the impact. Everything throbbed, and he closed his eyes against the sting of tears that clouded his vision. He wouldn't cry. Joe sucked his lower lip into his mouth to stop it from trembling. Breathing slowly, trying to sort out what hurt worst, Joe slowly opened his eyes and pushed onto his right arm. The arm didn't hurt, but his ribs flared and Joe gasped, freezing against the pain. His whole right side felt like it was on fire. His knee, too, even worse than his side. Blood trickled down his right knee, staining his white baseball sock and dripping onto his second-hand sneaker. Joe sniffled, biting down hard on his traitorous lower lip as it tried to wobble. He was grown up now, nine whole years old. He wouldn't cry. Standing up, Joe scrubbed his teary eyes with the back of his hand and grabbed the scooter's red handlebars. The chrome neck was dented in two places, distorting his reflection, and part of the handlebar foam was torn. He wheeled the dented scooter to the store's bike rack, but knew better than to slip it between the U-shaped divisions. Instead, Joe turned to the scooter sideways and leaned it against the wall behind the rack. Now that he was up and moving, his ribs didn't hurt as bad, though his knees stung even worse. Joe sniffled and scrubbed the brimming tears from his eyes. His knee was scratched and bloody, but as long as he didn't look at it, he was fine. Wobbly lower lip now fully under control, Joe released it from his teeth and half-limped to the storefront. The bell over the door jingled cheerily as he stepped inside. He'd been to the same store a thousand times with Mom, but somehow it seemed bigger today. The aisles went on forever, each one packed with different kinds of food. Red-boxed crackers were lined up next to bottles of Coke and Dr. Pepper with a giant yellow sign above them all that read SALE, 75% off. The green floors reflected the glaringly bright fluorescent lights that hung overhead, and the tiles reflected in the glass-faced doors that kept the milk and ice cream cold. Would Mom be mad if he got a fudge bar, too? Don't you bleed on my floor! Joe jumped, his injured knee giving out from shock. A large hand closed around Joe's arm, holding him up. Joe looked up and back to see Ozzy standing over him. The store owner was a big man, almost as wide as he was tall, with a ruddy unshaved face. His store apron stretched tight over his large round stomach, which made the white-stitched Ozzy's corner store stand out even more boldly against the Viridian fabric. Joe's mouth worked wordlessly. Had Ozzy always been this big? I just mopped, Ozzy continued. His dark eyes glanced down at Joe's bloody knee, and his large caterpillar eyes drew down in annoyance. I got a clean rag in the back. Don't move. Joe stood ramrod still as Ozzy barreled down a narrow aisle to reach the open workroom door. He knew Ozzy wasn't being mean. He was always like that. Mom said he was an abrasive man and that he was all talk and no bite. But knowing that didn't stop Joe from wrapping his arms around his waist where he clenched the fabric of his graying Royals t-shirt. Standing still with nothing to do but look around the overwhelmingly large store, Joe couldn't ignore the pain in his leg. It burned all the way down to his ankle. He wanted to move just a little to take his mind off the pain. But if he did, Ozzy was sure to notice. 
Here, dropping a ratty white rag onto Joe's head as he came out of the back room. The rag was old, tattered around the edges, and looked like it used to be a towel, but it smelled clean and there weren't any stains. Thanks, Joe said, going down on his good leg to press the rag against his bloody knee. It looked a lot worse than he originally thought, and Joe winced as he pressed the rag against the torn skin. What are you doing here anyway? Ozzie asked. Where's your mom? Making lunch, Joe said, glancing up at Ozzie through his bangs. Kneeling on the floor, Ozzie was even larger and scarier than before. We ran out of bread. Bread's on aisle three, Ozzie said before looking Joe up and down. You got money. Five dollars, Joe said. It was the most money he'd ever seen in his life. He reached into his pocket for the crumpled bill, but it wasn't there. Joe froze. Did he lose it? Frantic, he switched his hands on the rag and fished into his other pocket. Nothing. Joe swallowed hard and looked up at Ozzie. His lip tried to wobble again. He made it stop. I... Joe's voice cracked and his face went hot. He cleared his throat and tried again. I lost it. Ozzie barked a laugh and Joe jumped, almost dropping the bloody rag on his knee. Of course you did. He swatted at Joe and he scrambled back. Get out of here, you little thief. Ozzie said, chuckling. Come back with your mom. Joe's mind buzzed as he scrambled from the store. Was Ozzie angry? Did he really think Joe was trying to steal? He'd never steal. Mom said it was wrong to take things without paying. But if Ozzie really did think Joe wanted to steal, then why was he laughing? Joe's knee buckled when he pushed open the door, and he yelped, nearly tumbling to the ground. He clung to the door handle with one hand, dangling precariously over the pavement. A line of ants trailed onto a crack in the sidewalk. Regaining his footing, Joe stepped over them. Pain flared in his leg and Joe gasped. The rag slipped free of the bloody scrape when he fell and more blood welled up to dribble down his leg. He wanted to put the rag back on his knee, but it was on the ground now. The ants were already crawling on it. That's mine, Joe said, snatching the rag from the ground. He shook it free of dirt and ants, tears welling in his eyes. He sobbed. I didn't even step on you. When he woke up that morning, Joe was excited for his birthday. Mom had woken up early and made pancakes with orange syrup and then played Ninja Turtles with him before she had to wash the dishes. But instead of playing on his own like he usually did, Joe decided to help wash the dishes. Washing dishes wasn't fun on his own, but Mom blew bubbles at him or splashed him a little, and that made him laugh even though they had to wipe up the water later. When the dishes were done, Mom had homework, so Joe cleaned his room so she wouldn't have to tell him later. Because that's what it meant to be grown up, right? To wash dishes in the sink and wipe water off the floor and clean your room without being told? Sure, it wasn't all fun, but it wasn't bad either. But oh, how naive he'd been. Growing up wasn't just about cleaning things. It also meant going to the store on your own and crossing the big street by yourself and tripping and falling and getting bloody and forgetting money and being scolded and feeling dumb because you want to cry but you can't because you're grown up now and grown ups don't cry. The tears fell and Joe curled into a ball, sobbing into his knees. The salty water stung his knee, and that made him cry harder. Joe didn't want to be grown up anymore. He didn't want to go to the store alone, or cross the street by himself, or stop driving with Nick, or never eat Mrs. Newman's cookies. He just wanted to be a kid again, to play Ninja Turtles in his room without picking them up, or put his dishes in the sink without washing them. He wanted to make cinnamon toast without worrying about running out of bread and needing to go to the store to buy more. He didn't want his stupid scooter and its temptation of the free open road. He didn't want to have to help himself when he was hurt and scared and alone. He wanted mom. Joe? Honey, are you okay? 
Joe looked up with a sniveling gasp. M Mom? Oh, Mom said, going down on her knees to inspect Joe's scraped knee. Poor baby! Joe gaped at her. Poor baby! He was nine for crying out loud. A hand landed on Mom's shoulder, and Joe traced it up to find Nick looking down at him with a half-smile. Why don't you grab the bread, Em, and some wet wipes for Joey's knee? I'll brush him off. Mom pursed her lips, looking back at Nick for just a second before she nodded. I'll be right back, she said, kissing Joe's forehead. Joe waited until he heard Ozzy's bell ring before he wiped the kiss off. You okay, buddy? Nick asked, hoisting Joe up by his armpits. It sounded like quite the spill. Joe blinked. You heard me? What? Nick laughed, brushing the dirt and dust from Joe's clothes. He didn't even notice he was dirty. No, Liam's mom called. Liam saw you fall. Joe felt a deep pit open in his stomach as he looked across the street. Sure enough, Liam was peeking through the curtains. He gave Joe a wave. Heat ran through Joe's body from head to toes, the pit in his stomach yawning wider, but he forced a wave back. Liam saw him crying. Who is the coward now? Hey, Nick said, nudging Joe's chin up until they were eye to eye. None of that. It's okay to need help, Joe. And it's okay to fall down sometimes. Heck, it's even okay to cry. That doesn't mean you're a baby, okay? And it doesn't make you a coward, either. The pit in Joe's stomach started to fill. Really? Really. You think I've never cried before? Nick looked up at Ozzy's glass front door, and Joe glanced over, too. Mom was standing at the register, holding bread and baby wipes while she talked to Ozzy. Hey, Nick said as Mom pushed the door open and the bell tinkled. You did a good job helping your mom today. He ruffled Joe's hair. I'm proud of you. We should have enough bread to last us until payday, Mom said, two loaves of Wonder Bread sticking out of the green plastic bag. I got the wipes, too. She popped the top and tugged on a wet nap. Joe's jaw dropped. She was going to clean his knee now? In front of Ozzy's store? While Liam was watching? It's not so bad right now, Nick said before Joe could stutter out of protest. The bleeding stopped, and it's not that far to the house. I can finish lunch while you clean him up. Oh, Mom said, looking from Nick to Joe. Well, all right then. Are you okay to walk, Joe? Joe nodded vigorously. Nick grabbed the scooter from its resting place against the wall. Mom held out her hand, and Joe stared at it. He wasn't a baby. He'd already crossed the street once by himself, and he could do it again. But just because he could do something, did that mean he had to? Joe took Mom's hand. Then, for good measure, he took Nick's too. Joe may not be a baby, but he wasn't grown up yet either. After all, he was only nine. Joining me today is Cassiopeia Fletcher. Welcome, Cassie. Hi, thanks. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting. Uh, Cassie wrote her first book at the age of six. Is that right? I did. It was it was riveting. <laughs> I'm sure it was. That's, that's pretty impressive, though. Most six-year-olds are still learning how to write complete sentences. So, um, And I understand it was about a cat named Stephanie who... Uh, Went around the city looking for her family. Is that right? Yes, it was. It was a very fat cat named Stephanie, and um, everybody called her Fat Cat instead of Stephanie, and she was very upset about it. But 
she couldn't tell them that her name was Stephanie because she was a cat. So... <laughs> I love it. And and since then you've gone on to pursue creative writing, right? You've you have your MFA in creative writing. And is it your hope then to uh, someday be able to teach at a university? Um that was my entire goal goal going into it. You know, they say that those who can't do teach, but I think that's <laughs> a terrible plan. And that if you're going to teach people how to do, you should probably know how to do yourself. That's so great. So Cassie, we've enjoyed listening to the Emerald City and I I love the uh the emphasis on family and those family relationships. Um and I can't help but look at your story about Stephanie <laughs> and and wonder then does does that theme of family in infuse your work? Oh, ab- absolutely. I have a very big family. And so family is very important to me. Um, and there's always an underlying um, theme or an underlying message regarding family, um, whether that's, you know, a family that gets along or a family that doesn't get along. Um, and usually they're very big families because mm. I have one of those and I can relate to that. But yeah, it's it's always been a huge point for me to include moments of family. That that's great. And tell me then, share with uh, our listeners because your name is a beautiful name, uh, but not super common, Cassiopeia. So so tell us about that. Why why did your parents name you Cassiopeia? Um, well, my dad considered himself an amateur astronomer. And um, Cassiopeia is one of the constellations, and it's a um, Greek mythology. But when it was, it was actually a, um, <laughs> it was a condition when my parents were talking <laughs> marriage. <laughs> my my mom said she wanted twelve kids, and my dad said that's fine. But he got to name the first boy and the first girl. And there were two things that my mom never wanted for her kids, <laughs> and the first was a junior. And the second was a really weird name and she got both. So, um, (laughs) that was, that was their compromise. Oh, that's awesome. They, they have a lot of interesting stories like that when they were recording. But, um, in case you're wondering, there are not 12 of us. There are only eight. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Well, that was going to be my next question. Did she get, did she get the 12? (laughs) So where do you fit then? It sounds like you're the oldest girl, but where in the lineup are you? I'm number two. Um, so I have an older brother and he's okay. the junior. And then I have uh, three brothers and then a sister and then two more brothers. That's wow. eight, right? <laughs> I, uh, yes, we'll say it is. <laughs> I'm not going to. If not, there's another brother in there somewhere. <laughs> And I and I love the the um, relationships that are explored then in the Emerald City, and particularly from a perspective of of a child, uh, you really get that sense of how he feels toward his mom, the sacrifices that she's making for him, and and it's beautiful. Thank you. I. It was really interesting because I've never really written a child before I wrote Mm. this story. And um, 
I, I have to admit, I can't remember when I started writing it. I just remember finding it like years later and being like, oh yeah, this was really cute. I should finish it. And, um, it was largely based on my youngest brother. who's very precocious. He's incredibly smart. Um, he's not a child anymore. And, um, it was, it was really very fascinating to try and get inside his head because at the same time I wanted to use sort of adult language and concepts, but I didn't want to lose that sense of him being a kid. I'm not entirely sure if I managed that, but it was, it was a fun exercise and I'm really glad it turned out well. Yeah, it it's so great. And, and I love that the, his stakes are from an adult perspective, very small, but for him, they're, they're huge. <laughs> Yeah. And they're, and they're very, very important. Um, and then become very important to the reader because, because we can sense how, how critical these, these moments are in his young life. Yeah. And it's, it's a difficult age for a young boy, you know, turning nine, you're, you're not really a child in that sort of situation. You know, you, you have to grow up very you have to learn how to take care of yourself and take care of your mom. And um, especially now, my um, my brothers are, are married um, and some of them have kids. And it's it's just so fascinating to watch these young kids, you know, try and navigate the world, which is it's just huge. You know, everything is so much bigger than you and everything is so much harder to do. You know, you want to sit on the couch and it's like you're rock climbing. And, um, I kind of wanted to, to grab that with, um, with Joe and it was, it's also kind of me channeling a little bit of what I remember from being that age, because I do remember being nine years old and sitting on the bus because we lived in a, uh, on an air force base in, um, Tennessee. And so like the high schoolers, the middle schoolers, the elementary school kids, we would all ride the bus together. And I just remember the, the, the high schooler sat in the back of the bus and I was in elementary school and they would walk by us. And I'm just looking up at them going, wow, they're so big and old and, (laughs) you know, mature and smart. And then, you know, years later I was a high schooler and I was like, wow, high schoolers are dumb. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I wanted to ask then, um, you know, it's very clear that Joe and his mom are, are poor, uh, but you never come right out and say it, you know, and a, a kid like him wouldn't necessarily be aware of, um, of their level of, of poverty. Um, but there's definitely this thread of these, you know, economic implications and, you know, he's, he's had, takes this $5 and then he loses it and the, and the, um, you know, crushing despair that he feels when that happens and that sense of failure. Um, what, what sort of experiences did you draw on or, um, how did you kind of evoke in this world, get your idea for this, this particular setting. And why do you think it's important in this story, uh, that they're at the level of economic, um, distress that they are? Um, well, I, I never really 
worried or thought or considered about money as a child. Um, my family is not what you would call wealthy, but we're, you know, we're doing okay. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of that has to do with the sheer number of children that we have. Um, looking back, we were, we were pinching some serious pennies and Mm -hmm. I never really knew that. Um, my parents always made sure that we had whatever we needed. Um, and I never really felt like we were wanting anything, but my first real impact or my first real personal association with poverty was when I was in college and, um, I had a job and it was a terrible job. I hated that job. I was a waitress. (laughs) I I am not cut out to be a waitress. Um, but I, I didn't have money. I didn't have really much of anything and my parents would help out when they could, but they couldn't always. And I didn't like to burden them because, you know, I was, 20 something. And I felt like I should be able to take care of myself. Um, sure. But there were times I'll admit when I would, you know, get call Papa John's and order an extra large pizza. And that's all I would eat for a week. Or I had to decide whether I was going to get gas or get groceries. And it usually came mm. down to, I had to get gas because if I couldn't get, if I didn't get Uh, gas and I couldn't drive to the store to get groceries. So it was, it was definitely a different world. And, um, I can't imagine what it would have been like if I had had children at the time. Um, and that kind of was a motivator for, for this situation is this single mother in this really hard economic situation, trying to do her absolute best so that her child doesn't feel like he's, you know, Un, un, taking, that he's not taken care of. And, um, yeah. you know, she has to kind of cut corners every now and then they use, um, you know, reusable paper or plastic plates, um, you know, the hefty mm-hmm. plates instead of real plates. And, um, but for a kid that doesn't really matter. All he knows is we have dishes that we have to wash and, yeah. um, you know, uh, he, he has a bed that doesn't have a frame, but he has a bed and, you know, they have a carpet that used to belong to a dentist's office, but they have a carpet. (laughs) And, um, so kind of in my mind is his mom is doing everything she possibly can with what she has. And she's doing a fantastic job. And not only is she, uh, she's not a nurse, she's a CNA, which never actually gets mentioned. Because sure. uh, Joe doesn't know that that's right. What he just knows that she goes to the hospital every day and works. Um, but she's going to to nursing school at nights, uh, with you know the in- entire purpose of making a better life. And the the I mean, there's a whole bunch of background stuff to this story that Joe doesn't know, like for the fact that that even though Joe's house is in disrepair, it's kind of a worst house, best neighborhood kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So eventually, you know, when his mom is in a more stable place, they can fix up this house and they'll live in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, as opposed to living in a not so nice house, in a not so nice neighborhood. So, yeah, I I tried to get all those those little things in there. But at the same time, I didn't want to um, disrupt the integrity of Joe's narrative. 
Yeah, it's fantastic. And, and really helps, I think, to increase that empathy, you know, as we really see his world a little differently than he does, uh, but can also understand the way he sees it. And it's beautiful. And, and I, I, you mentioned how there's, there's more going on in the story than what's overtly stated. Um, so I have to ask what's beyond the bridge. Oh, it, it's the County line. Um, okay. So he just, he didn't, he doesn't want to cross into the County line with somebody else's child. Mm -hmm. Um, that gets remedied later when he marries Joe's mom and now Joe is his child and sure. they can drive wherever they want to. Um, his, his car also isn't that great. It's not that it will rest <laughs> on the other side of the bridge. It's just that it's a junk of a car and he doesn't live that far. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, those silly little adult things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, for Joe, it's like this, big thing. And so I'm actually not surprised you asked about it. Cause I kind of want people to know what's on the other side of the bridge. Cause that's what yeah. Joe wants to know. It's, it's just a dumb little adult thing. The, you mentioned that, you know, the mom has this kind of happy ending in store and I, and I love getting this sort of glimpse that, that she may have more happiness in her future. Um, have you written any more along this story or is this just what you expect, you know, where, you know, the story goes after the last page. Um, no, I don't anticipate writing anymore. Um, it's kind of, it, I, I don't know if you, you caught it or anything, but it's kind of based off of the wizard of Oz. And mm -hmm. <laughs> so it, it was really just this, this journey of Joe trying to figure out that, you know, yeah, he wants to grow up, but at the same time, he also still wants to be a kid. And, um, so I, I kind of, I have thoughts and, and ideas about where, um, Joe and his mom and, and everybody ends up later, but I don't anticipate that I'll write anything of it. Um, just cause I, I don't know, I kind of like the ambiguity of the ending and people can assume a happy ending or a sad ending or, um, whatever kind of ending that they want a way down the road. But for me, I kind of just speculate that this mom is too hardworking and too dedicated and too loving for her son to live the way that they live for too much longer. So I can't imagine this ending any other way than happily ever after, but I'm kind of a sucker for that. <laughs> well, it's beautiful and it, and it certainly fits the tone of the piece. Uh, what, what other sort of genres and moods do you like to write in? Um, actually this is probably the only literary thing I've ever written. Um, I'm mostly science fiction and fantasy, like oh, hardcore okay. fantasy. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do some steampunk I do. Um, I've actually dabbled in just straight romance. Um, I, I'm pretty eclectic. I don't, I, I don't like that um, people think that you have to write just one type of thing. Um, sure. If I want to write something, I'm just going to write it. Oh, that's great. So do you have any published work or, or what, what do you hope to do with your publishing career in the, in the future? Um, I'm not published yet. 
but I do have a contract with a publishing agency in Texas called Acon Books. Oh, cool. um, I have the first three books of what could potentially be a nine book series that are under contract with them. Wow. Yeah, I don't have the release date yet, so that would okay. be exciting. <laughs> but yeah, no, um, so I'm working on book four for that. But right now, um, that's kind of almost on the back burner while I finish school. Oh, great. Well, stay safe. And thank you so much again for taking some time to talk with me about the Emerald City today. Oh, my pleasure. It was great. Thanks for having me. Listeners, you can connect with Cassiopeia on Verso.inc. If you go to Verso.inc, you can sign up for free and look at some of her other work that she has on there. You can also connect with other authors and discover some of the other authors that work that we have up there as well as voting. Uh, If you enjoyed the Emerald City, get on and give Cassie an upvote there so that it can rise in popularity and help other readers find it. Again, that is verso.ink. Thank you for listening to this episode of First Fiction. If you'd like to hear more great fiction from the best emerging authors, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about this podcast and the authors and stories we promote, visit verso.inc. That's verso.ink.